after missing a week, I always have to find a way to reorient myself in here. But we are on uh, chapter 8, section 8. So if you want to turn there, bottom of page 25 is where we're going to start here this morning. And so, as we're turning there, I'm going to ask if someone would be willing to open up in prayer. Pete, can I ask you to open up in prayer? Amen. All right, so chapter 8, section 8, we got started on it last week, but we did not get all that far, so we will fire it up again here. To all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he certainly and effectually applies and imparts it. He intercedes for them, unites them to himself by his spirit, and reveals to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation. He persuades them to believe and obey and governs their hearts by his word and spirit. He overcomes all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom, using methods and ways that are perfectly consistent with his wonderful and unsearchable governance. All these things are by free and absolute grace, apart from any condition for obtaining it that is foreseen in them. And I think we got as far as the very first text there. I think we got as far as John 6.37 last week. So we're going to pick up with the rest of those texts um, for footnote 38, which is the first sentence here. So let's cross over that again. And then we're going to look at the texts. So to all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he certainly and effectually applies and imparts it, he intercedes for them. Okay, so who wants to take John 10, 15, and 16? That's where we should pick up. Lisa, okay. Who wants to take John 17, 9? Caitlin, who wants to take Romans 5, 10? Dave Weeb? Okay, why don't we do that? All right, so... John 10, 15, and 16. Okay. So that is exactly where we left off last week. Um, is this one sheep, one shepherd, uh, sheep who are not of my flock... And again, that supports the Mormon doctrine of intergalactic evangelism, right? We all get our own planet. And if you're a man and you've got multiple wives and multiple children, with those multiple wives, you've got a head start on populating your planet, right? Because the God of this planet was like you at one point in time, right? Is that what that's supporting? <laughs> Ron's not sure. No. What does it mean that there's sheep in other folds? Gentiles. Yep. Gentiles. 
This is no longer a Jewish-centric gospel. God starts with the Jews but expands out to the Gentiles, and that is what is meant by sheep from other folds. John 17, 9. Who, wants to, who had that? That was over here, Caitlin. Okay, so Caitlin, Jesus died for everybody, right? <laughs> did Jesus die for everybody? He did not. He did not. Okay? Those for whom Jesus intercedes, he intercedes perfectly. Jesus died, he lays down his life for the sheep. He lays down his life for his friends. He lays down his life for those whom the Father has given. Because again, if Jesus is interceding for everybody, who's in heaven? Everybody. Is everybody in heaven? No. No, here's another way, talking last night with Jeremy, I was reminded when this is, for me, was a tough concept to wrap my head around this. Because if you're like me, you've grown up your whole life hearing that Jesus died for everybody, right? So here's a question. Go to Galatians 4 verse 4. Or no, not 4 verse 4. Galatians 2 verse 20. someone want to read? Well, I'll read it here. Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Thought experiment. Picture somebody who is currently in hell. Can they can't claim Galatians 2.20 applies to them? I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live but Christ in me. Because Christ gave his life for me. Can someone in hell say that? No, they can't. Is Christ interceding for them? No. Did Christ die to pardon their sins? No. No, he did not. Okay? He did not. Now, that doesn't mean that we have knowledge of who Christ died for and who didn't. So how do we do this in evangelism? This was a question I had, and maybe you're thinking it now too. If this is true, that Christ intercedes perfectly for those that the Father has given him, uh, then can we say in evangelism to every last person you meet, can you say Christ died for your sins? You actually can't. That's overpromising. That's overpromising. We don't know. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. We don't know if this person will believe or not. Here's what you can say that's always true. If you repent of your sins, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you can know with certainty that Christ has died and made perfect atonement for your sins. That you can say to everybody. Okay? If you put your trust in Christ, this is true for you. But you cannot, assuming Nero, assuming Benito Mussolini, assuming Jean-Paul Sartre died in their sins... You cannot tell those men before they died that Christ died for them because he didn't, okay? Jesus is interceding for his sheep. 
and I know this is difficult, and I know this cuts against the grain on, on probably a lot of sayings or slogans that many of us grew up with, but we've got to think this through. If Christ actually atoned for everybody, hell would be empty. problem with things is, if you're like me, you kind of want a one and done solution. And it's hard to get, to come to terms with the fact that we're never done reforming things. <laughs> we're never done fixing things. Um, what is the root of it? I would say that the saying that Christ died for everybody is actually a feature if you push Arminian theology quite far. So as people, as the Reformation grew maybe about 200 years in, the Reformation grew to encompass certain Arminian theology. And that would be a feature that Christ died for all. But there's a problem with that. There's, there's three, possi- well, there's four possibilities here. I don't know if I've discussed this personally or if that was here. I can think of four possibilities. Christ died for no sins of no men. Okay? One possibility. I think we all agree that's not the case. Okay? Christ died for no sins for any people. No salvation. Christ died for all the sins of all men. In which case, universalism is true. Christ died for all the sins of some men. Which is, I think, what scripture teaches. Or Christ died for some sins of all men. And that would be the Arminian position. Christ, no, go ahead here. Yes, but the clause in John, yeah, but in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that whosoever believes, yeah. right? There is that condition there. Right. Yeah. Yes, that you can say to anyone, sure. Yeah. Yes, that would be perfectly sound and fine. Yep. But there's that condition there for the believing ones. Yes. Yeah, and that would be, as long as you're saying all of John 3.16 and not just the first part, you're on perfectly good ground. Yeah. Yeah. But back to Vern's point about where does the atonement come in? If Christ died for all men and you're not a universalist, you'd say, well, there must be something that keeps some people out of heaven. Well, it's your unbelief. Okay. Next question. Is unbelief a sin? Did Christ die for that sin? 
Okay? That's, that's the problem the Armenian has to grapple with. If Christ died for that sin, then I'm still going to heaven. Or he did not die for that sin, which now means we're still limiting the atonement. Christ died for most of the sins of all men, but he did not die for all sins. Right? So we have to think through the, the consequences of how we understand the atonement. And I agree, as long as we say all of John 3.16, so that there's a clear distinction between the believing ones and the unbelieving ones, God did die for the cosmos. And I would even apply that beyond just people. In Romans 8, it says creation is groaning. Christ died for animals, nature, for the cosmos. Um, certainly includes people. But, but there has to be a distinction between how this is applied Believing ones and, and not believing ones. Caitlin, you had your hand up. Yep, yeah, do it. Yep, that he died not just for our sins. Yep, yep. Okay, so again, John's audience is Jewish Christians. Did God die for Jews only? Me and you are also saved. He did die, not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. He died for French people. He died for Irish people. He died for Kenyans. He died for Argentinians. Right? He died for Chinese. He died for Japanese. He died for South Koreans. Right? So, um, and again, w- with this language of all, or world, it can mean many different things. The cosmos is the world, right? So all creation. Sometimes the world, Jesus says in John 12, I think it is, um, or not Jesus, but John reports the Pharisees angry at Jesus saying, look, the whole world has gone after him. Okay, well, think about that. Were the people, assuming there was natives living on North America at that time, were they going after Jesus? No. They hadn't heard of him yet. But the whole world was going after Jesus, right? The oikumene, the whole known world. Pharisees, Sadducees, Greeks, Jews, they're all going after Jesus. Well, every last one. No, not every last one. But all the world was going after Jesus, right? Um, all of Trinity was at Minan's last night. Is that true? Well, in the normal sense of language, Yeah. Was every last person in this room right now there last night? No. No, I can count a few that weren't. But everyone was there. Right? And we talk this way all the time. Oh, what did I just do there? All the time. Really? So every second of every day of my entire life, I talk that? No, no. But I do talk that way all the time. Right? So there's, there's a normal use of language that, that can also apply there with words like world or, or all. Right? And, and even in the Gospel of John itself, the world means many different things. God so loved the world. Okay? The whole world is going after Jesus. Don't be friends with the world. Whoa, whoa, whoa. God so loved the world, and we're not supposed to be in love with the world. What, there's, diff- there's a different sense of what world means in, in those settings. Right? When we shouldn't love the world, he's meaning the world system, world philosophy, worldly patterns of living. But God loved the cosmos, right? And this is a little bit like the word hell or sheol or some of these words where we kind of have one word 
the world. And the Bible says cosmos, oikumene. Um, there's lots of different senses in which, in which it's meant. Jeremy, and then Keith. Past tense. Yep. Yep. Right, because he loses people just like Moses did. Yeah, yeah. No, and he is a better high priest. Yeah, I agree. And it's an interesting point, and that this actually filters into lots of stuff when we think about the world and, and all and that so forth. Paul says in the past tense, in Paul's lifetime, the whole world was evangelized. Past tense. That has actually lots of implications. The whole oikumene. Not everything on the globe, but the whole known world, the Roman Empire was evangelized. The, the gospel was in all corners of the known world by the time Paul died. So the whole world was evangelized in some sense, but again, we're talking about a limited whole world, the whole known world. Not, we're not talking the southern tip of Africa or Australia or Canada at that point. We're talking the known world. So we just have to be careful how we understand world because there's different Greek words that, that get translated into one word that we have. Keith. I think it's pretty common in the Bible that prophecy can work, not always, but can work in layered forms, right? So a good example is Isaiah's prophecy that an Alma can be translated virgin, can be translated young lady, would conceive a son. Very shortly thereafter, Isaiah's wife had a son. I think that's a temporary, typological fulfillment of clearly the virginal birth of Jesus, Right? And so I think it's actually God's design that there's a word that can be understood multiple ways for that because there's an upfront typological fulfillment and then clearly it's ultimately looking further ahead. And lots of prophecies are that way, right? Where the prophet sees something in his own time, short term, but it's terminal in, in Christ. So I, I think that can, because in one sense, the world is not yet evangelized, yet before Paul died, the world was evangelized. So we have to somehow have categories to 
to put that all together. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I think revelation, or I think progress keeps unfolding, and we see more and more light as the Bible kind of sheds more light on it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, prophecy has to be concrete. So I, I don't, I wouldn't object necessarily to the idea of multiple fulfillment. I would just rather see it as layers and kind of echoes until the termination point. But it has to connect with the real world. I don't like the view of prophecy that it can attach to anything and everything that's happening in the world because then it essentially means nothing. So I don't like idealizing prophecy. I, I think prophecy connects to actual historical events. But in the wisdom of God, he can make it connect to something in Isaiah's life. Or he can make Hosea do something that Hosea maybe doesn't even understand. Right? Hosea, go marry a prostitute. And then when she commits adultery on you and she ends up at the whore auction, I want you to go buy her back. Okay? Hosea is living out a picture of the church. That's who we are. We're the whore who committed adultery on our wedding night. We deserve to be at that auction and get hauled off with someone. But Hosea is a type of Christ who buys this woman back because he finds her beautiful despite her, her folly. Right? That's how prophecy works. I wouldn't necessarily say it's multiple fulfillment. I'd say there's a typological value up front, but then clearly, in light of further revelation, we see where, where it was really pointing at, which was the church. I think, if I'm understanding you correctly. Okay, more on this, or do we want to keep trucking? Yep. Well, at least something in their logic that they have to contend with. Right. And I would say that means you're Eve's daughter. Yeah, I don't know if I can answer that precisely. If you are... The dividing line here isn't how strong or how constant our faith is. It's the object of our faith. So if you are truly and imperfectly trusting in Christ, as we all are, the object of your faith is what's sufficient. Right? Doesn't mean you're not going to have a good day. And also, if we think in terms of evangelism, just because somebody has rejected the gospel consistently for 75 years does not mean... (laughs) that the lights won't come on tomorrow. There is no case too hard for God. And that's where I'd want to see the sovereignty of God and salvation not as a dour thing that limits it to nine people in history. I'd see it as an optimistic thing. Even Saul of Tarsus can have the scales removed from his eyes. 
That's where I would say this is good news because this means salvation is actually possible for the hardest people. But to your point, I don't think a bad day or I don't think doubt or even the loss of assurance means it's gone. It just means we're in that Romans 7 spot where the old man still isn't all the way dead and the new man isn't all the way alive. And so we struggle. We struggle with sin. We struggle with assurance. We struggle with doubt. But uh, Tim Keller, I think, paints a great picture of this, the object of faith rather than the strength of our faith. faith. And I think, I've, I think I've used this picture here before. If you've got some you know, poor old lady who's never been on a commercial flight in her whole life, and she gets on that plane and she's white-knuckling it all the way, her doubt and her fear has zero impact on that flight. It's in the hand of professionals. That her fear, she had enough, pl- enough faith to get on the plane. And whatever fear and anxiety comes once she's there, it has zero bearing. She's in good hands. Or you go back to those old grainy black and white photos of guys with their you know, primitive flying contraptions jumping off a cliff all full of swagger and they face plant. No matter how much confidence they have in a bad object, also doesn't change the outcome. You can have all the confidence in the world in yourself and you're not going anywhere. Okay? So a weak faith in a perfect savior is saving. You know, bulletproof faith in yourself is not saving. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to extinguish hope in people who are, who are struggling, not at all. It's the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith. Okay. She's just white-knuckling it. <laughs> And you'll notice if you've been in the church for a while, there's lots of bad advertising. Yeah. <laughs> there's lots of examples of people we're ashamed of who are going to be in heaven with us. And we have to be okay with that because we're also bad advertising some days. I am. Yep. Jeremy. Yes. Yeah, you don't have to understand how you were born to be born. No, this isn't a schismatic or, or tribal thing. This is, we're trying to understand the Bible. There's lots of people that are going to be in heaven that don't share identical theology today. And we've got to be okay with that. We've got to be okay with that. Okay, Romans 5.10. Let's keep moving here. Okay, so we see again two elements of salvation there, by his death and by his life, okay, and I think, I think we often correctly emphasize the death of Christ, but do we adequately emphasize the life of Christ, his obedience, his righteousness? For who is it still a bit of a new concept that Christ not only died, so you're your shame and your guilt get put on Christ, and he takes that. I think we all probably grew up with a good concept of that. I think probably everybody in this room that grew up Christian probably has a strong concept of that. Our guilt goes on to Christ, and he dies what we deserve. I don't think it's equally clearly taught that all of Christ's righteousness equally goes on to you. 
in God's courtroom, if you are trusting in Christ this morning, you are absolutely perfect. Yeah, but look at my behavior. Right, yes, you're perfect. But, but all these things, right. Christ isn't looking at you when you're in the witness stand. Okay? God is looking at Christ's righteousness which covers you. That's why there's parables of wedding garments and robes of white. Because when God looks to the witness stand and you're sitting there, he sees Jesus Christ. So despite what you did last week Wednesday, if you're in Christ, he sees someone who is perfectly righteous sitting there. And so they get not only a not guilty, the verdict is perfect. I am perfectly pleased with this person. Perfectly. Okay? Do we have a clear concept of that? Marina. So how can we still be judged by works? Yep. Just throw that out there. How can we say, the Bible's clear, each man will give an account, and yet we're justified by grace alone. How do we make that all work? How's that? Well, I, th- I think there's an element of both here. Matt Plett will give an account for every careless word Matt Plett said. And yes, all those careless words are covered by the bl- perfection of Jesus, who never uttered an idle word. How does that work? Caleb, and then Jeremy. Okay, Jeremy. Lisa and then Marina. Okay. Yeah, we're putting all the pieces on the table. That's good. We'll try to click them together here soon. Yep. Let's keep putting them on. Marina. Here's how I'm stealing, well, every thought I have. I've never thought an original thought in my life. And if I do, please distrust it deeply. So I'm going to steal from Augustine here. He talks about how does this work? And I think he's right. I think he's reconciled the biblical data. Is that because we are justified by grace alone, that judgment is perfect. We're covered by the righteousness of Christ you are perfectly righteous to stand in, f- in front of God. 
because God can only look on perfection, right? Habakkuk says he can't even look upon sin. So to be in his presence, we have to be perfect. We have to be perfectly covered by the righteousness of Christ. And yet the Bible is equally clear, I think, that we are held accountable. We're judged for everything we do. Uh, and I do think that the, the language of reward and cursing does carry over into the afterlife. So um, in Luke, Jesus says that the one who knew his master's will and did not do it receives a severe beating. The one who didn't know it and disobeyed gets a light beating. Okay? And there's jewels and crowns in heaven. I, I don't think um, that everyone's reward or level of punishment is the same. And that maybe sounds weird too. But I do think there are degrees of punishment in hell. The more light you're sinning against, the worse it is. And I actually also think the bigger our cup of joy is in heaven based on our fruitfulness on earth. Now, no one's going to be unhappy in heaven. Um, jealousy and vanity are human problems that we have on earth. But if I get a little thimble full of joy, my joy will be 100% full in heaven. And I will not be jealous of Jonathan Edwards and Billy Graham who are pulling around this big ox cart full of joy. Okay? They're also 100% full of joy. If they have a bigger cup than me, uh, in this world with my sinful desires, I will be jealous. In heaven, that won't exist. If someone's cup of joy is bigger than mine, and I'm looking, I'm 100% fully satisfied in Christ, I don't care if someone else has been put to more honorable use on earth and is rewarded for it. And does that lead us to works-based salvation? I don't think so. And this is where I'm going to steal from Augustine. The rewards we get in heaven is ultimately God crowning his own gifts. Because <laughs> here's the thing. Billy Graham didn't get to decide to be Billy Graham. He's actually, and I mean this with all due respect, he wasn't that great a preacher. He had a great South Carolina accent. He's a tall, imposing man. I loved him. But there was a million other preachers on earth preaching the exact same gospel message that God had pastoring churches in West Virginia of 25 people. Why? I, I don't know. <laughs> Why did God decide to just bless Billy Graham's ministry? I don't know. Why did he do it with Jonathan Edwards? Not a clue. Because there was a hundred other Puritan men all over New England just as faithful pastoring little churches of 20, 30, 40 people. And I don't, so it is, it's still all of grace. It's still God crowning his own gifts. You, Billy Graham, I'm so pleased I did this with you. Here's these rewards. I'm crowning my own gifts to you. So Billy Graham's not going to be proud about it in heaven. And I'm not going to be jealous. We're all going to be in front of God perfectly, holy, beholding him. Um, I, I think that's how we reconcile that these are both true And maybe he will. Maybe he was more faithful. Yeah, we, th you're right. We don't know that. We don't know that. Vern, Jeremy, and then Keith.
That's good. Jeremy and then Keith and now Jalen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Billy Graham had the humility to be able to laugh at himself. Like Chuck Swindoll always says, don't take yourself seriously. Nobody else does. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Keith. No, I, I think Augustine's language of God crowning his own gifts is beautiful language. That, yeah. Jolene. Yeah, Lewis paints some great pictures of heaven in that book. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and you read in Revelation, the martyrs being vindicated. There is something special about those who have suffered in this life being vindicated. Are we good to keep going? Amen. 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 So are you guys suggesting, even with the rewards we get in heaven that we'll all be casting down our golden crowns around the glassy sea. And maybe that's the place to end it. The joy of heaven is communion with Christ. It's not shooting a 63. It's not seeing grandpa again. It's not one more fishing trip. I know we talk that way at funerals for whatever strange reason. The joy of heaven is Christ. I get to know Christ with no barriers whatsoever. I get to start running, to Vern's picture, on the fuel I was meant to run on. I don't become less Matt Plett. I become who I was meant to be in heaven. That's the joy of heaven. And if grandpa's there enjoying it with me, wonderful. But the point isn't seeing grandpa again as much as I love my grandpa. The joy is me and grandpa are together at the feet of Christ, enjoying him perfectly, no barriers, no sin, forever. Why don't we talk that way at funerals? And before funerals. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are kind.
Lord, I also want to thank you that you are the crown jewel. You are the prize of redemption. You are the prize of heaven. You are the, the goal and the focus of the new creation. Renewed minds, renewed bodies, renewed hearts, renewed heaven and earth. Lord, we see it so dimly. You give us a little taste here and there. And it stops us and fills us with awe. Lord, give us glimpses until we get there. Lord, and I pray that we would never be proud of the gifts we have, and we would never despair of the gifts we don't have, because it is ultimately all from you, through you, and to you that these things exist. Lord, I pray that we would not wait till heaven but that we would start practicing now already rather than being jealous of what you're doing in our neighbor, that it would fill us with joy that you did something in him that you did not do in me and that we would rejoice. Lord, I pray that we would spur each other on that way, that we would encourage each other that way. Lord, that we would truly see that right now it does count forever. The days you've given us on this earth are a dress rehearsal. Lord, and I pray that we would take that seriously. Fill us with joy. Fill us with the anticipation of future glory. Lord, and help us to see the riches that you have purchased for each one here. Lord, thank you. Fill our hearts with reverence. Give us a weighty sense of joy this morning as we move to song and prayer and the public preaching of your word. Lord, fill us with joy, and I pray that you would work in the heart of each one here, where we are at, and that we would experience your joy and that that would become contagious as we go out into the world. Thank you again for all your gifts. We pray this all in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ. Amen.